I invite you to the end of Acts 13, beginning of Acts chapter 14. When a virtuous woman determines to become a mother, she makes a courageous decision to accept pain in the pursuit of greater gain. As a woman of spiritual maturity, she's under no delusion that motherhood will prove easy. Indeed, she willingly chooses the pain of childbirth, putting her own life even at risk. She realizes she will suffer sleep deprivation and be subjected to an unrelenting routine of feeding and clothing and changing and hauling and bathing a child. She knows all of this. From the first evidence of pregnancy until she loses consciousness in death, motherhood involves pain and unrelenting concern. Often there are times even of acute grief. She knows all of this going in. If she is wise and mature, she resolves nonetheless to accept the pain and she sets her face on the goal of bringing a life into the world and living every day with hope in God, despite the risks. Christian, we rightly honor virtuous mothers who accept the pain of motherhood for the greater gain, the glory of God. But I ask in that light today, and on the basis and the authority of the text before us, to what degree are we willing as believers to accept the pain for the gain of bringing unbelievers to new birth in Jesus Christ? There is no question in our minds that a mother realizes the pain that is ahead of her. Do we realize as the followers of Christ the pain that is ahead of us if we intend to be involved in seeing people enter the kingdom of God as we are striving to do the same. One thing we cannot miss in the narratives of the book of Acts, and particularly this 14th chapter, is the reality that anyone who proposes to join Jesus' mission to give new birth to sinners must embrace a courageous resolve to endure pain, the pain of satanic opposition to people entering the kingdom of God. This is a banner that certainly hovers over all of the book of Acts. But as we come to this 14th chapter, it seems that Luke is purposefully highlighting the pain that is involved in this whole process, the struggle that is there. Indeed, we find the Apostle Paul coming in this chapter as close to death as he will come until his life is actually taken away through persecution. We remember Paul's first missionary journey with Barnabas, the ministry in Pisidian Antioch, Paul's brilliant message there at the synagogue, speaking to these Jews and saying, your Messiah has come. Look at the Old Testament Scriptures. They bear witness to this from start to finish. Jesus is your Messiah. It's a powerful sermon and people respond Yet, we again see the resistance, chapter 13 and verse 50, where we read that there were those who stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Paul and Barnabas walk the great Roman military road, the Via Sebast, for approximately 85 miles east-southeast of Antioch to Iconium on the eastern edge of the region of Phrygia. 
in the larger province of Galatia. They're working their way on this road through rolling fertile fields and verdant forests of the Galatian Plateau. They're passing snow-capped peaks of the Sultan Dag in the distance, and they come to Iconium itself, a Greek city resistant to Roman influence, governed by a demos, that is an assembly of chosen citizens. We read of their entrance into Iconium there in verse 1 of chapter 14. At Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Joy in God once again. The gospel success here in Iconium. A brilliant, vibrant, proud Greek city. And yet there is this response. Paul goes to the Jewish synagogue. This is his strategy. It works well. There's the common ground of those who believe in creation, fall, redemption of some sort. They believe in the prophecies of Messiah. He comes into the synagogue, preaches the Word of God, and people respond. We know essentially what he preached by looking at chapter 13. We saw his message there. Jesus is your Messiah. The Old Testament Scriptures point to him. He is the son of David who will rule forever because he never saw corruption. And people respond. Did you notice here, it says that they spoke in such a way. They enter the Jewish synagogue and speak in such a way that a great number believe. Do you remember last week, 1348, we read that stark statement, and a beautiful statement. The word of the Lord is proclaimed, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And I asked the question last week, does that trouble you? Obviously it should not, it's the word of God. Those appointed to eternal life believed. But there are some who rejoice in this word in 1348, but then when they come to 14.1, now they start to choke. Most people choke over 1348. Probably we could even say most believers in Christ choke over 1348. That's a tough phrase for us to take. Those appointed to eternal life and all of the implications of that are troubling to work out. I just take it at face value because it's what God has said and we work out the details later. But there's some who say, yes, That's a beautiful truth. It's God's Word that God appoints people to eternal life, knowing that only the sovereign power of God could ever save anyone, yet then they come to 14.1 and they start to choke. They spoke in such a way that people believed. I don't think we need to choke over either statement. In fact, we shouldn't. I would even argue that we should not emphasize one over the other because I don't believe that the Bible does. God's sovereign electing purposes in salvation are typically worked out through the means of the diligent efforts of His faithful servants. God typically saves those He has appointed to eternal life by the means of witnesses who labor with diligent effort to proclaim the gospel. We should not land in one ditch or the other. God is calling upon us to give diligent effort at great risk, indeed to invite pain, to pour out our lives in the interest of those who do not know Christ as Savior. To labor hard for the gospel while 
not falling into the ditch on the other side to say that it all relies upon us. There is a sovereign God of grace, and only through Him can salvation be realized. Yet it is realized as we choose with our will to proclaim the gospel and others choose through the grace of God, His electing love. They spoke in such a way that many believed. In verse 2, the unbelieving Jews, however, here's the resistance again, stir up the Gentiles and poison their minds against the brothers. I ask you the question, when do the Jews care about what the Gentiles worship? All they want to do is throw rocks at what they do, but here they're trying to persuade them not to believe something. We see the powers of darkness working vehemently against the gospel. And so, verse 3 says, they remained for a long time. You notice the word so there. It's because of this resistance, there are those initially who believe. But there's such resistance that Paul and Barnabas stay here a little bit longer than maybe they would prefer so that they may answer the false doctrine. They extend their stay in Iconium, defending the gospel with great courage. And they weren't alone in their defense, were they? Because, as verse 3 says, they bore witness to the word of His grace, and God grants signs and wonders to be done by their hands. The Holy Spirit authenticates the message of these missionaries by working miracles. And it connects clearly to chapter 5, where the apostles there in Jerusalem are also performing miracles to say what these individuals are speaking is God's Word. It's God's truth. It is the good news. You can trust it. Look at these signs and wonders. Here is Paul and Barnabas performing these same signs and wonders in these initial stages of the proclamation of the Gospel now, not simply to Jews, but now to Gentiles as well. The Holy Spirit is there and is pronouncing the truth through them. Verse 4, but, here it is again, resistance. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. The reality is that the gospel advances against stiff resistance. This is the truth. And here at Iconium, that resistance only tightens. Verse 5, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Well, when do you run from persecution? And when do you stay your ground? Sometimes it can be a hard call to make. But I think the answer is that you do whatever serves the advance of the gospel best. That's your answer. In this case, it was to run. There are some times when we have no option to run from persecution. There are other times where those under stiff persecution can make that decision for the advance of the gospel. I think of our supported missionary, Sean Boudet. Remember, as we first became involved with his ministry, he was on the run from northern India, literally. He was persecuted. There was threats on the life of his family. And he decided that in that situation, the best thing to do was to leave. Leaving behind a witness, leaving behind others that were able to carry on the work. And his decision there has been confirmed historically. Leaving was good for the witness that was left. 
Well, he's come to southern India now. We were able to get in on the ground level and to help him settle there in southern India. Has he been persecuted there? He has. There's been persecution that he's faced in southern India. Has he left? He's not. The circumstances are different there for him. And so I think there is a principle here of missionary endeavor in places of physical persecution. Sometimes it's best to leave. Sometimes it's best to stay. But the key is what best advances the gospel. Sometimes it's foolhardy to stay. Sometimes you must stay or the cause of Christ will be denigrated. Paul and Barnabas run. That is here what is best. But the key is this. When the evangelist runs and then stops preaching, it's wrong. They don't stop preaching, do they? They leave there so that they can live to witness another day. They witness at Lystra, 18 miles from Iconium, at Derby, 55 miles from Iconium, and at smaller villages throughout the area in this unique region of the Galatian province of the Roman Empire. Now, Luke will hone in here next on the events at the rather rustic, uncultured, unsophisticated city of Lystra, where the people were receiving, certainly, of religious ideas, but did not have the same sophistication as would have been the case at the Greek city of Iconium. They spoke their own language here of a small Anatolian tribe. They were either then bilingual, also some speaking Greek, or Paul and Barnabas are using a translator, but they come to Lystra. So remember, they're run out of Iconium. They're escaping a stoning there. And they come to Lystra, verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and he had never walked. Now the numerous parallels. I, I hope something in your mind was triggered there. And you say, that's, yeah, we've been here before, haven't we? A crippled man. That takes us back to chapter 3 in Jerusalem. And the healing of that lame man by Peter and John, as they were going into the temple, remember this? I think, again, there's so much that Luke skips in the text. There's a great response that will come here as we work our way through the text. He doesn't say anything about it. He's putting this here for a very specific reason. This scene at Lystra is crucial to the message of Acts 14 and the greater message of the book. But there's linkage here with this crippled man to what was taking place among the Gentiles in Jerusalem. Here it is in an entirely pagan city. But this man is crippled, you'll notice, from birth. He's never walked. That is, his ailment is congenital. He's not been injured. He's born lame, and everyone knew it. His whole circle of influence knew there was a really sad day in this man's mother's life. And she recognized her child would never walk, ever. He's crippled, and everyone knows it. But he, while Paul is preaching, verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. There's a response to a message, isn't it? But he's somehow, he's making eye contact. And believe me, as a speaker, this makes a lot of sense. 
There's people who aren't really with you, and you figure that out. And there's people sometimes you feel like you're staring right into their soul, and they're staring into yours. This man's locked into what Paul is saying, and he's sensing on his face and in his eyes, this man is hearing the gospel. He's responding in his heart, and he calls out to him, stand up. What amazing thing. The man leaps up. Now think of the nature here of the healing. We can't miss this either. It's immediate. Born lame. He doesn't learn how to walk. It is an immediate healing. It is a total healing. It is a permanent healing. It is publicly verifiable. It is universally acceptable. I read in a few things to this text from other texts of scriptures, but this is the nature of biblical miracles. No one can argue that a supernatural event has taken place. This man gets up and is running around and walking, and the Greek text indicates that he keeps doing this, walking around, and so that everyone can see him. The response, verse 11, And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker, and the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. Now this is both comical and tragic all at once, isn't it? Paul lifts up his voice to this lame man, and now the crowds lift up their voice, exulting that the deities have come down in human flesh to walk among us. Now, Paul and Barnabas do not speak Lyconian. I don't think there's any indication that they would have. This was a remote language for an individual tribal people. Probably takes them a little bit of time to figure out exactly what everybody is, is yelling about. But it becomes clear, perhaps through interpretation, what the people are saying. And as the priest comes with this oxen, with garlands hanging over them, draped from the horns, this was an indication these are oxen headed on their way to be sacrificed. And apparently, in very short order, the priest jumps to his business, and they're going to kill these oxen to say, right in front of Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, the gods have come down to visit us. Now, quick time out here. We've got to get this, because this is amazing. But when we think of the history of it, it makes perfect sense what they're doing. The ancient Latin author Ovid records a legend known well to the inhabitants of Lystra that Zeus and Hermes once disguised themselves as men and visited the Phrygian hill country. You can read this legend in his writings to this day. As the legend goes, they went to 1,000 homes to try to find lodging, and every one of those homes turned them away. But then they came to the home of a very poor, humble, elderly couple who lived in a straw hut and reed-thatched hut. They had almost nothing. They could ill afford to care for these guests, but they sacrificed their resources to do the best that they could. And you know what Zeus and Hermes did? These gods come down from heaven. They turned the couple's hut into a temple with a gold dome and with marble pillars. They made the couple priests in that temple. And when they got to the old, old age of death, they didn't die. 
They were transformed into an oak and a linden tree, and their life went on. One more piece to the story. All those people who had rejected Zeus and Hermes and didn't let them into their house, Zeus destroyed them all. That's their religion. That's the background as they receive Paul and Barnabas. The people of Lystra are superstitious. They're an unsophisticated lot, but they're smart enough to understand a supernatural event has taken place. And what do they tie into? A supernatural, we're not that dumb. This man is running around and walking. Something has happened here. They tie into the only story they know. They don't know of a creator God, of a miracle-working God who split the Red Sea and brought the children of Israel into the land of Palestine. They don't know these things. And so they tie into their only story. This is Zeus and Hermes. And with any luck, we might even get in on the home makeover program here if we're really good to them. For their part, Paul and Barnabas are set up perfectly to live, you've you've seen it, this popular theatrical theme of some guy who stumbles upon an ignorant tribal people and they see him and believe that he's a god and suddenly his lot in life improves exponentially. He's suddenly seen as a god. I mean, they're kind of standing right on that little fantasy that's played out in theatrical lines so often. If Paul and Barnabas play this thing right, I mean, think about it. I mean, it's humorous, but really it's right there in front of them. If they play this thing out right, they're going to be dining real well pretty soon here with beautiful women dropping grapes in their mouths and servants fanning them with palm leaves. I mean, they've got the whole thing fixed here. These people think they're gods. They can play this thing out. What's really sad in our day is there's a lot of people faking the miracles and having the same response and loving it. Just the circumstances have changed a bit. Would that they would read how these men respond to this. When the apostles, verse 14, Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? All humor aside of what is standing there for them, they realize that the miracles that have been performed, and this miracle in particular, is meant to bring glory to God and to authenticate them as human messengers, but it's been seen now as they are God's. This is horrifying. They tear their garments as a sign of blasphemy. And they labor to deflect the praise, to draw the focus to Christ where it belongs. If only today's self-styled faith healers would listen in. The glory was to go to God for anything that was legitimately done. This is a very different message. He says, we also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Now this is a distinct message for them in their world, and we need to hone in on it a bit here, but it's a distinct message from the message he preached at Pisidian Antioch, isn't it? Why? He's at Pisidian Antioch, he's dealing with Jews. 
Let's take the Scriptures. You know creation, fall, redemption. Let me explain to you how Jesus is the Messiah. That makes perfect sense in a Jewish context. Where is he going here with these individuals, these pagans? He goes to creation, saying, first of all, and let let us start on that, we are not gods who look just like humans. We are humans who are just like you. That's the first point. Secondly, we are not gods from heaven. We are messengers for heaven. And thirdly, we bring good news that you would turn from these vain things. Repent of your false hopes and false worship. You are worshiping idols. You are worshiping gods made in your own image. I mean, look at the story of how Zeus got here. And look at the story of how Zeus lived his life. He's just like you. Sensual, depraved, and it's all left you empty. Turn from these vain things. There's good news. You can And to do so, you must then turn to the living God, the Creator of all things. We are men just like you. We bring good news of this living God from heaven who has made everything. Verse 16, in past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now stop here, because that is very easily misunderstood. We can take that to be, God just let people sin and he didn't really worry about any consequences. Just let them go in their own way. No, it means something very different. It means he let them go in their own way. That's their judgment. He leaves them to their sin, but he has not provided a specific word of salvation. It's a horrifying statement. Verse 16, he has allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, is to say he has permitted the nations to walk the path of destruction. But we've come with good news. This is a new day. And would you say and conclude then that up to this day, the Gentiles had no light Utterly no indication of who God is. Don't go that far, says Paul, verse 17. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons. Satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Did you see it this week, that warm day? That beautiful blue sky and those cumulus clouds coming back to visit us here in this, our summertime. Beauty is there in that sky. What wonder there is in creation. And God in all of His goodness is announcing in this, if interpreted properly, He is saying that I am a great and glorious God. And He's a God of grace as well. I think that is indicated in the natural order on this level. From time to time, those clouds go away. That blue sky is lost and the sky darkens and rain falls and food is produced and we eat and have gladness of heart with full stomachs. And in all of creation, there are these wonders and these splendors that we can see and experience and we can grow in their light and enjoy them. What is that all saying? God is great. And God is glorious. 
But God let you go your own way. There was a witness to you, pagans. There's been a witness from the beginning of creation. That sky is everywhere to be seen. The glories of God are everywhere to be experienced. But here's the problem. No one was listening. The heavens are declaring the glory of God and everyone has their fingers in their ears. This is our world, isn't it, Christian? We live among people with false idols who live in this beautiful creation and they attribute it to something else or they ignore it altogether. This God is the God we serve, says Paul. Do not worship us. Abandon the false worship of everything other than Him, the true and living God. Verse 18, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. There is a principle here I think that we should gain as we consider witness for Christ, and that is when you witness to people who have no essential knowledge of the Bible, start with creation. They need creation. They need to sense who the true God is. If we jump to Jesus Christ, it's even possible they have heard of Him as some teacher somehow, but they have no concept with which to understand Jesus. When we speak to someone who knows the Scriptures, we can go much more readily to Christ, to the law, to develop conviction of sin. And certainly there is in the conscience the conviction of sin even through the law that people don't know. But this is where Paul always starts. Starts with creation, the one true and living God. And the orientation with the pagan goes this way. Negatively, you must turn away from your trust in false gods who leave you empty. And positively, you must turn to the one true and living God who is the source of all joy and gladness and whom you must not spurn. It's not a full sermon here, certainly, but it is good news. God has left you to your way, but there's a new day. There's a day in which God has shed His light upon you, pagan Gentiles, through Jesus Christ, and He proclaims that good news. That's one crisis averted, but another crisis begins in verse 19. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. There's a lot in that verse. Some time may have passed, but regardless, this radical shift, this whiplash indeed in response is not as surprising as it may really seem. These people, let's understand, were very disappointed. They wanted the home makeover deal. They wanted to get something out of Zeus and Hermes, and it's not Zeus and Hermes. They're just extremely disappointed, which leads them to ask the question, who are these guys? Guess who shows up on cue? These Jews, all the way from Antioch, to say, we'll tell you who they are. These are bad guys. They have tricked you. They have fooled you. They are deceivers. And they poison their minds against the apostles. As the adoring crowds in Jerusalem turned on Jesus, so they turn on Paul here. He's brought outside the city and he's stoned. We need to understand this is a slow, torturous, extremely painful death. Put yourself in it if you can, because we hear stoning, it's a way somebody dies. It's a hard way to go. 
You probably hit, got hit in the head somewhere in a sports event or running into a pole at full blast or something like that. And you, you know that jarring feeling and the searing pain that comes. This is stone after stone after stone. You are hit, you are knocked down, and you are covered with stones until no one cares to go find out if you're dead because they don't want to get that close. And every single person throwing stones assumes you are dead. It went that far. They walked away, assured this man was dead by stoning. But verse 20, when the disciples gathered around him, getting ready to bury him, pull him out of the rocks, put this man to rest, He rose up, and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, I really want to interview Paul on this one. (laughs) Was there a healing? There's no evidence there's a healing in the sense of a full, complete, miraculous healing where all the wounds were gone. I don't think there would be any indication that 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 took place. Did he get hunkered down under some rocks and, and the full weight of it wasn't really... How did he do this? How did this happen? Well, we don't know. All we know is this man suffered the pain of stoning. And he got up. He goes into the city, clearly. He would have been hidden as he went in there and uh, certainly left cautiously the next day. But he goes on with Barnabas to Derby, a border town southern extreme of Galatia, some 60 miles away. We don't know how Paul made that journey, having suffered as he did. But let's just say he was fully aware that the proclamation of the gospel was very risky business, and at times a most painful enterprise. He makes his slow journey to Derby. From there, he's taken in the text here on a quick route back to Antioch of Syria where this whole journey started. But there's a lot that takes place. And that's why as we see this stoning, there's emphasis placed on it here in Acts 14. It begins to fly now, and we will as well. But Derby in his return trip, verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, that's it. You see the point. In Lystra... He's stoned. There's a miracle that ties him with Peter. But here at Derby, many believe, and that's all we get. They return to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. That's an amazing statement there. He can keep going by land and get home a lot quicker, passing right past Tarsus to get on to Syrian Antioch. But instead, the apostles do something very strange. They stop their journey eastward into southern Galatia, and they turn around and go right back where they've been. Why? They go back, as it says in verse 21, returning to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. You see, when you've brought new life into this world. Of course, only the Spirit does that, but they have witnessed the truth of God and they've they've seen these people respond to the Gospel. You want to stabilize that new birth. And this takes tremendous courage, doesn't it? Can you imagine the day he walked back into Lystra? Some time has passed, but not all that much. 
This whole thing took between one and a half to two years, the whole journey. He's just gone on to Derby, has turned around, and he's come back here to Lystra. Can you imagine walking back into Lystra where you were stoned to the verge of death? Now, I think here probably he's not evangelizing aggressively because he is, what he's doing is stabilizing the believers that are there, encouraging them in the faith. And here, I'm sure Barnabas is really joining in with his gift of encouragement as they work together to stabilize these believers. These people will stay here, and they'll carry on the gospel from this beachhead. Paul's going to move on. He stabilizes the new birth encourages these new infants in Christ with great courage, strengthening them, verse 22, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and catch this, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Imagine the power of that sermon. Here he stands with all these scars, wounds still healing, and he stands before them and says... Through many trials, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, on that point, we need to be cautious. He is not saying that through many trials, we earn entrance into heaven. But what he is saying is the entrance into the kingdom of heaven is a path riddled with resistance. If a woman is privileged to choose motherhood, she chooses a path of pain. She is really under no delusion that she's somehow going to escape this. That was a little trend for a while. I don't know if you knew about it. The sort of psychological means you could escape the pain of childbirth. See, that, that kind of thing God permits so Christians can laugh. But there, there's a lot of people reading those documents that really thought that was going to work. Well, you haven't heard much about it recently, have you? It doesn't work. You choose motherhood, you choose pain. You choose to enter into the kingdom of God, you're on a path of pain. That's the kind of path that it is. So, with this woman who chooses motherhood, pain doesn't make her a mother. Pain is just the path that she's chosen. Persecution does not make us fit for the kingdom of God, but persecution is the path we're on. It's out there. There's rejection. There's resistance. Persecution, indeed, is one of the surest signs that we're on the path to the kingdom of God. Not persecution for being obnoxious and stupid as we talk to unbelievers, but resistance and rejection because we're being faithful to the Word of God. That's what Paul's saying. He stands there with wounds, marks of Jesus in his body, saying, it's a path we're on, people. This is the world it is, and it's not going to change until we meet Christ. You're not going to gain great welcome when you proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. The discipleship continues in verse 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed We could land here for a long time, but these fledgling churches are supplied with elders who are to exercise oversight and spiritual watch care. Think of the qualification in 1 Timothy 3 that says such people should not be a novice. 
Well, that has to be a little bit of a flexible phrase, doesn't it? I mean, it's not been long at all since these people trusted Christ as Savior. Now, we might assume perhaps many of these chosen as elders would have been Jews who knew the Old Testament Scriptures and really had a jump start on knowing how to give spiritual watch care to the new believers, but there's, we don't know. All we know is he's gone back through here where he's just been, and they find elders to be established people to exercise spiritual watch care, not because they're perfect, not because they're super spiritual, but people who are assigned with the task of caring for the flock, which we're all to do, but which some are to do uniquely and have a particular responsibility before the Lord of the church for that work. Verse 24, they pass through Pisidia, just tracing down where they'd been to Pamphylia. When they had spoken the word at Perga, remember they missed that town on the way in, perhaps because of a sickness in Paul's part, we're not sure. But they went down then to Italia, just a smaller town, a little ways down that was a port. And then from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. Syrian Antioch now, sending... This is the church that sent them, and now they report to that church. Verse 27, when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. This is the great news. What a joyous reunion. In a day without internet or satellite communications, it's been a long time of anxious prayer and patience for the church at Antioch. Here they are. I mean, Paul's not looking so great, but boy, they've got a great story to tell. And they're fine. God's brought them through it. What great joy. God has opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. What, in some respects, uniquely started here. I mean, there's Cornelius, the Gentile, to whom Peter preaches. But there was something unique that began here at the church of Antioch, preaching the Word of God to Hellenists. And now what joy there must be to say, this is God's plan. He has abandoned the Gentiles in some sense to their own way. He has given them simply the witness of creation which they've spurned for so very long. But now God is on a new track. In Jesus Christ, He's calling Gentiles directly into His kingdom without becoming Jews first. What joy there must have been to sense God is moving in this church and He's affecting the world through this church and through those who now Take up residence, verse 28, and remain no little time with the disciples. Paul, Barnabas, teaching, laboring to build up this church. That says something in and of itself, doesn't it? This church is far more established than any of the new churches that have just been planted on this trip, but they stay here for a long time. The job of building up disciples and teaching them the Word of God never ends. It can never be done well enough or long enough. They stay here, they recoup, they rest, and they continue to teach the Word. Paul's first journey is a smashing success. It was also marked by severe persecution. Paul never expected anything else. You enter the kingdom of God, you walk through the reign of persecution. That's the path there. The path... Is one of pain, but it is worth the gain of being used by God to contribute to the new birth of a lost sinner. 
The call for us is to persevere against the opposition and to be faithful to Christ. This is indeed the example that Jesus gave us, isn't it? For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. It's what was coming ahead. It's His relationship with His Father that led Him to endure the pain of the resistance of this lost world. Our focus, though, must be on the kingdom of God. And we ask that question in light of this text, are you willing to suffer ridicule and rejection for Jesus? Are we willing to do that? Only can answer yes if our face is set on the kingdom of God. And that is the priority of our lives. We can only answer that if we believe in the victory of Jesus Christ. Is the momentary pain worth the eternal reward of faithfulness to God's kingdom? Are we motivated by the quest of Jesus to win newborn believers? The reality is, it will be painful. The reality is, it's not safe or easy. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But the hope, the prospect is joy. The privilege to labor in behalf of God's glory. The privilege to join Jesus in rescuing people from a lost existence in hell like the call to motherhood the call to labor for the spiritual rebirth of sinners is a call to suffer on some level discipleship is not an easy deal but it's a glorious life to lead and point others to christ to stand for him paul returns to antioch What a tremendous report he could give of faithfulness and fidelity against all opposition in the teeth of Satan's oppression. We, as a church people here at Antioch, have taken the word into the world. And God has blessed it. You know, someday we will all stand before not merely a church who has sent us but a Savior who has sent us. Stand before the judge of the universe. And I pray on that day for you, and I pray on that day for me, that we will be those who have suffered for the cause of Christ. In our place, it is so easy in some respects. But have we suffered rejection and ridicule? Have we been opposed for Jesus? If you're on the path to the kingdom of God, Understand this, it's a path where there is opposition. May we stand someday before God, having endured such opposition from sinners. And may God, by His grace, bless this church that we too may have both stories. Stories of rejection and ridicule. Stories of grace where God has rescued and saved people among us by His mercy. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we so give You thanks for the work that You are doing through Christ. There isn't a one of us who could possibly walk out of here today smug or feeling self-confident or pleased with our endeavors for You. If anybody would even just be on the verge of apathy, I pray that You'd rebuke us. Certainly there's no one among us that would walk out with pride. We need to change. Our focus needs to be rooted to the cause of the gospel. 
But God, may we not go out of here with our proverbial tail between our legs. That's not what this text would ever be meant to do. There is rebuke here, but there is a call to join the cause of Christ. A call to take up the cross and to suffer with Him. A call to realize, yes, we are in a world where there is great opposition. That's reality. But Lord, how we thank You that You've rescued us from the world that is on the broad road leading to destruction. And by the Gospel of Jesus Christ, You have rescued us to a path that is leading to glorious light. May we be faithful on that journey and please You. If there is anyone who is separated from that light, all we can do, Father, is pray that they'll respond to this message of salvation in Jesus, that you'll bring them to know you, to turn from their idols, and to embrace the true and living God. To that end we pray, and to that end we now respond in song and close our meeting together to your glory and honor. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.